You're listening to Ira on Sports. It's time to bring in the legend, Michael Doc Emmerich, recently retired NHL broadcaster, author of Off Mike, How a Kid from Basketball Crazy Indiana Became America's NHL Voice. And Doc, thank you so much for taking some time out to join us today. Um, I, first and foremost, I just have to thank you for that. You had an amazing career, and I want to thank you for, for truly being the voice of hockey throughout my entire life. I mean, I grew up listening to you, and it's an honor to have you here. Ira, it's wonderful to talk to you, too. Um, it makes me sound a little ancient, but, you know, frankly, I am. So I'm glad to have been uh, a part of your hockey life anyway. And uh, it's great to talk to you today. And I can only imagine uh, what some of the highlights of your hockey life might have been or your football life or your baseball life. But I'm glad to have been a part of one sport. Well, Doc, I'm, I'm born in 1983 and I'm a Ranger fan. So I say the highlight of my life is Matteau, Matteau, Matteau. But, um, yes, you were 11 <laughs> at the time, yes. weren't you? <laughs> yeah, and that was, that's what started my love of, of this great game. But I, I want to start down here in South Florida with the Panthers. Um, this team seems to be extremely talented, and but we see them fall short more often than not. What do you think is the missing special sauce for the Panthers to take them to the next level? Randy Moeller, he's a really good friend of the show. I promise I won't tell him anything that you say. <laughs> no. Randy would probably have the recipe more than I would. I think stability has been the thing. Um, you know, there, there was one, one well-meaning uh, – decision that they made so long ago they thought in going out to sunrise that they needed someone to fill the seats and that that was pavel burry yeah and as it turned out it didn't work and (laughs) they have been sputtering since trying to get this to work and i think uh probably the the start of everything that has been good was the bringing in of, of joel quenville because you need some strength and you need someone who has hockey sense and you need a coordination between coach and general manager, which I think now has taken place. But as the Red Wings are finding out after 25 straight years of making the playoffs <laughs> and as the Blackhawks are about to find out after having not won a series since they defeated Tampa Bay for the Cup in 2015, this is a long stretch after you finally decide that it's time to start from square one. So I wish I could tell you this is going to be quick, but it's not. (laughs) But the good thing is that it is in place, and at least you have solid people that are are now going to be in place to do this. And some of the parts are there, but not all. And you look at a very difficult division. Are the Panthers better than Boston? Are they better than Tampa? Are they better than Toronto? so in the way that the current structure is set up, they've got to get past those three yeah. minimum to make the playoffs. And that's difficult. And that's the same question that they would ask in Detroit right now. Are they better than those three? And the answer is no. So it is a haul. And I wish I could give you a rosier picture. <laughs> but the good thing is that you have, uh, you have a credible management team and you have a Hall of Fame coach. And that is a start, but they are not the guys that score the goals. They can make the decisions as to who are out there, but it's going to take a while. So Sorry. <laughs> we appreciate the honesty. Um, no, it's, but one of the great things about hockey is the parity. And, and, you know, one or two moves, to, they could very well be in the Stanley Cup a year or two from now. Who's a team you think, Doc, that wasn't on many people's radars this year, but it's going to surprise everyone next season? 
Well, I would have said Columbus before, but they're not a surprise anymore. Yeah. Uh, and that, that would have happened two years ago, and I think they're still going to be a surprise team uh, this year. I think that are they going to win the Metropolitan? No, I think uh, in the regular season, I think Washington will. And I think Boston will win the regular season in the Atlantic. But uh, if I were to pick a team that might not be on people's radar in South Florida, only because they don't see them a lot because they play so late at night, I think Colorado could win the whole thing, although the tournament in the NHL is an open tournament and you roll the dice and anybody could win. Any one of the 24 teams that made it last August could win. Uh, the open tournament is hard to predict, but the regular season is a little easier. And I like Colorado and Edmonton out west. Those are the teams that I like. But in terms of a sneak attack, if you haven't paid attention to Colorado, it's worth paying attention to. So if it's off South Florida radar, get it on your radar because the Avs are terrific. Oh, trust me, Doc. I talk about that top line of the Avs all the time. Probably the most exciting um, in all of hockey. So I'm, I'm rooting for them every night. They, they make it look fun out there. Um, before I turn it over, you know, we've seen some number one overall picks come out and excel just absolutely immediately. Others, it takes them a while to find their groove if they ever find it. What are you expecting from Alexi Lafreniere um, right out of the gate in the NHL? It's very hard, isn't it? Uh, yeah. when, you, when you don't have somebody that is, uh, that is immediately like an Ovechkin and a Crosby where you, where you don't know whether this is going to be the next 87 or the next eight, uh, we don't know. I think he's going to be given the greatest chance to succeed because he's on a stronger Rangers team yeah. than what he would have been a couple of years ago. It's a revamped team, and I think it's going to be a stronger team. And they might have a chance to make the playoffs. You size them up in their division, whether they are better than the teams that are above them. And you could make an argument for the fact, especially if this season becomes shortened. Uh, and it looks today, here in December, that it might be a shortened season. Then that, that levels the playing field for some of the lesser teams or the teams that weren't as strong last year. Um, and he's going to be surrounded by better players. So will this make him look better? I don't know if it worked for Capo Caco that much, but we're talking about a first overall that they got. Um, it's, it's very difficult for me to tell you because I don't know how he's going to fit in and how he's going to excel. We knew with uh, the likes of Crosby and we knew with the likes of Ovechkin that, that it was going to be outstanding, but we don't know in this case. At least I don't. And sadly... I'm the one you chose for a guest today. <laughs> I'm not the one that can answer your question definitively with an exclamation point. I've got a hedge because I don't know. Doc, this is Iroh. Um, you were talking, Mike was a little bit younger than me, so I grew up in, in outside Pittsburgh, so I'm familiar with in terms of your Pittsburgh passion. Um, but it's interesting that you grew up in LaFontaine, Indiana, basketball crazy town, listening to the Pirates, being a Pirate, but on December 10th, 1960, you went to a hockey game that transforms your entire life, which is almost, I think, the 60th anniversary of that game is coming up. So I hear this from so many hockey fans, and myself included, about that first game and how that changed them when they were in the arena. So maybe talk about that for a second. Yeah, I, I spoke yesterday um, uh, with Con Madigan, who played in that game. Oh my uh, he and I are still friends, and isn't it odd that a guy that played in that game and had no idea who you are uh, it's an honor for me to still know this guy, who is still the youngest rookie ever to play in an NHL game at age 38 as a defenseman or as a forward. 
Uh, and here, here he is years later, and we still chat once another, and we laugh about him scoring a goal in that game and skating around the ice backwards. But <laughs> it is the same thing that is portrayed in the book that I often ask first-year journalism students or whenever I get a chance to visit a class in person or, or vicariously, as I often do now, to recall the first major event they ever saw in their life that was a sporting event. And so I will very quickly tell you that uh, when I walked up the ramp, you could not see the ice surface because of the enormity of the Coliseum, which once housed an NBA team called the Pistons before they moved to Detroit. So you're going up these ramps, and you still can't see the inside of the arena until you walk to the top of one ramp go into a concourse, go up a set of stairs, and then you see the arena, the interior. And that's when you see the ice that is so white and so enormous, it seems to you. And the teams are warming up, and Muskegon is in uniforms that seem so blue under the bright lights that seem so bright. And Fort Wayne skates out, and you hear the organ play the the Comets fight song, which that year was buckled down when Saki, of all things. It was a long time ago. And they're wearing white and orange and black, which uh, later would be stolen, those colors, by the Flyers seven years later. And and then you you see collisions and you see fights. And I didn't understand the rules, and I didn't understand why the Zamboni didn't grind up the red and the blue lines and deposit those in the bin behind too. But there was an awful lot I didn't understand, but I sure was taken by the speed of the game and the collisions and the fights, and it was transforming. So if we had time, I would ask both of you about your first experience. And invariably, what I have found is that when people describe that, they describe it in great detail. They often remember the score. They certainly remember who won and who the teams were. And invariably, they recount it with a smile on their face. And then I ask them, because at that point, I've probably done this for 35 or 40 years at the time that I asked them to tell me this. Multiply that times 35 or 40 years, and I still have a smile on my face. And don't think twice about getting into this line of work because it's just as good as you think it is. There are going to be days that are going to seem rotten to you, like in any job, but by and large, you're going to be one of the two out of ten that likes their work for the rest of their life, because it is pretty good. It's not 100% good, but no job is, but it's pretty good. <laughs> well, we're talking to Doc Emrick, author of Off Mic, and when I started reading the book, I'm like, oh, he's going to be interviewing Wayne Gretzky and talk about hanging out with Lemieux. But so much of your book is talking about minor league hockey and the Port Huron flags where you started and the Maine Mariners and the stories from minor league hockey. And when we think of great sports movies, the slap shots, the Bull Dorums, even Will Ferrell's, I think, best movie, Semi-Pro, it's that it's the minor league aspect of the game. And I just loved how you brought that out in your book. Thank you. Uh, I didn't want to overload it with minor league stories, but... Um there is an unpretentiousness about it that makes those stories more entertaining. <laughs> the NHL stories in the Olympics tend to come later on in the book, and uh, there was a danger in my mind of thinking that, that people that had spent their lives around Major League Hockey would be turned off by the minor league stories earlier in the book, and I had hoped that wasn't the case. But 
Um, I always said if I ever wrote a book that the longest chapters would be the early ones because um, the fact that the minor leagues are less pretentious and they make more mistakes. You're pretty sophisticated and pretty corporate by the time that marketing departments in the NHL get a hold of things. And so not many real loud mistakes are made, but there were plenty of them uh, when I was coming through the seven years of the minors. <laughs> the one story I loved was the fact that you actually, they probably should have brought you back for Meghan Markle and Prince Harry because you broadcast a wedding during a hockey game. And I thought that story was cute. I don't want to give all the stories, but maybe just replay that one a little bit. Well, we rode into uh, Des Moines, Iowa, a 14-hour bus ride the day before, and then you played two games because it was so far. You played Friday and Saturday in Des Moines. There was a great competition with girls' basketball on Friday night downtown at the Veterans Coliseum. They'd get 10,000 people to watch girls' basketball, but the Capitals, a professional IHL team, would do well on Saturday, but not on Friday. So they had to promote. They would normally get 1,500 for their games on Friday because of the sports competition in Des Moines. And the PR guy uh, came to me that morning and said, uh, the first intermission is going to be delayed by 10 minutes tonight because we're going to have a wedding on the ice. <laughs> and I thought, well, this is going to be interesting. Uh, so at the end of the first period, our poor Huron players went to the dressing room and the Des Moines players uh, stayed out on the ice, and they stood on either side of this long white mat, which was rolled out 90 feet from the inboards all the way to the checkered red line. And there was another mat rolled out along the red line, and the groom and the minister walked out on that. And the bride walked out on this long mat, and the players, who had already played one period, remember, and you know what wet hockey equipment tends to smell like. <laughs> so they are standing on either side of this mat, holding their hockey sticks, up with the blades touching to form an arch and it is uh, under this arch of hockey sticks um, perhaps trying to not concentrate on smelling that this young lady walks out to her destiny at center ice and there's a, a, a rather hurried ceremony there because of the time factor and rings are exchanged and kisses are planted and and the groom and the bride lock arms and they head back down this arch of hockey sticks there was a custom in the Midwest at that time of throwing rice at weddings, and the fans there wanted to salute the couple, and it was all done good-naturedly, but they didn't have rice to throw. They had a lot of other things to throw over the over the chicken wire that was up above the boards. They didn't have plexiglass in Des Moines. And so it all came out, and there was so much debris on the ice as the couple left the ice surface that um, the two maintenance men that worked the games in Des Moines had to detach the two nets and push them around like rakes to scoop all the debris up, and the delay was not 10 minutes, it was 45. But the promotion worked. They had over 2,500 fans there that night. Uh, bottom line is Port Huron won the game, so I guess we had to be happy about that. And don't you think that, I mean, I, I do a lot of comparison between hockey and basketball, and the fact that now basketball, you go from AAU to right to the NBA, it seems like you're even bypassing college at this point where they change the rules. But the whole idea of, of with these athletes in hockey, going to the small towns, working your way up, it, it's something that builds in. And I think it gives them appreciation for the game that maybe a lot of these basketball players do not have. When I first went, yeah, you make a good point. When I first went into the American League, it was a Philadelphia Flyers farm team that was being created in Portland, Maine, brand new. And the president of the Flyers, Gil Stein, who later was president of the NHL before Gary Bettman came in as a commissioner of the NHL, Gil was the president of the team in Maine as well. 
And he always said that there wasn't anyone who wanted to be sent to the miners, but after they had been there, they did appreciate the experience and what they learned there. They wanted to be in the NHL, but they realized that it wasn't a total waste of time to be in the minor leagues. And I, I certainly felt the last thing I would have ever wanted to do was consider the seven years I spent in the minors as a waste, because it wasn't. Not only did I collect stories, but I got in about 600 games uh, there, and that was 600 chances to make a lot of mistakes and not really get taken to task too much for it. And there's a lot of there are a lot of mistakes to make as a player or as a broadcaster in the minors, and the spotlight is not as bright there. And so you get a chance to really learn a lot about your craft and and learn through making mistakes there. I grew up in central Pennsylvania near, near Johnstown, so the Penguins at the time weren't that great. But when I went to school in 1985 at the University of Pennsylvania, I saw the pool the Flyers had on that town. And um, I was there just two, you know, two months, and then Pelly Lindbergh passed away. And just to see the – and you were the broadcaster at the Flyers at that time – just describe the, the enthusiasm the Flyers fans had for that team, those teams during those years. Ed Snyder was a magnificent salesman of hockey, and uh, there was a sportscaster in town named Al Meltzer, you may remember uh-huh, at that yes. time. And at one night on his evening sportscast, he said, this is a football town, it's a baseball town, it's a basketball town, it's not a hockey town, it's a Flyers town. <laughs> and when the Flyers are no longer playing, no one cares about hockey here. And he was absolutely right. And Ed took over the Flyers in 1967, brought them into the city for $2 million, and, and, and made them into something that was a very valuable commodity. And he changed the whole attitude of the Flyers three years later uh, when, through a very dramatic event, his team was getting beaten up by the more physical St. Louis Blues, and he swore it would never happen again. And so his general manager, Keith Allen, started drafting players that were six feet and 190 pounds and not a whole lot less unless they were hugely skilled would he ever pick anyone that uh, that small and so the flyers became behemoths and they became the broad street bullies and that carried through for a long time including the time that you were at penn by that time they had been established for a decade and a half as uh, as delightful thugs for the people <laughs> of philadelphia and as evil violets to the rest of the hockey world, people hated Philadelphia outside of, of, of Flyerstown. But boy, were they ever loved there. And, and the whole philosophy was all it takes to love a Flyer is to see one play if they're in your city or to meet one. And the Flyers were very good about being in the community, too. We're talking to Doc Emmerich. Uh, author of Off Mike, the legendary hockey broadcaster. And as you mentioned, this, this sort of segues in the next topic. You broadcast games for uh, NBC, NBCSN, CBS, ABC, TNT, ESPN, Fox, CSTV, Sports Channel America, Sports Channel, Prism. I mean, go on and on. And, that, and the title goes, and others. I don't know what others there possibly could be. But you mentioned about when you were trying to, you, were, you went in from being broadcast when you did the Devils and the Flyers, but also do the national broadcast. So you were a local broadcaster and then a national broadcaster. And I guess that Ed Snyder sometimes didn't like the fact that you tried to have that fairness during your national broadcasting when you're broadcasting the Flyers games. It tends to be uh, when you are doing sports in a one-team town, and if you think about the one-team towns across the country, 
there is an expectation usually from management, but oftentimes from the fan base, uh, to, uh, to be partial to the home team and actually cheer on the air for them. And, hey, I am a Pirate fan. I am not necessarily a Pittsburgh sports fan, but I am a Pirate fan. And the reason for that was that I grew up in rural Indiana listening to KDKA, and Bob Prince was the announcer, and he cheered for my team. <laughs> and so I understand that. But it was a struggle for me to do that philosophically myself. And so network television was a lot easier for me than being an announcer for the Flyers, where there was not only the expectation on the part of management, but also on the part of the fans that they liked that approach. In New Jersey, it was different because uh, Lou Lamorello told me before I even was there, and I didn't work for him, I worked for the network that carried the games, he said, if you can't have an opinion, you're no good to me. And the network wanted us because we were one of three teams in the New York area, not the only team there. They wanted us to be, let's say, impartial to an extent. They wanted us to talk about the Devils more than the other team, but not cheer openly for them. So that was the approach that they wanted there, and it was more comfortable for me to work in a setting like that. And the transition to the network from a New Jersey game to a national game was not really a stretch at all. It was only a matter of talking 50% about both teams as opposed to, say, 70% about New Jersey and 30% about the other team. And then you really focus in the book about 2004, 2005, when the whole hockey season was eliminated for the strike. NBC gets the rights. There were some issues. Should ESPN have it, keep it, because they keep running at SportsCenter. When they didn't get it, they don't air it. And then at the same time, they overhauled the rules. And, and you talked about in the book about no ties, and, and there's the obstructions opening up the game. And you felt that that was the big change in terms of helping get more you know, hockey. It was a major shift from hockey from being what the sport was before 2004 and five into now what we see it today. Yes, uh, I think that first year, especially out of that, the, the hockey was was really exhilarating. And then, of course, the coaches of the teams that had lesser talent learned how to coach against those rules. And so there were other rules that had to come in to try to um, to try to get that thrilling aspect of the game back again. And that's the way it has been with coaches back through the ages. There were always ways to anti-missile missile anything that was, that was working well. You know, coaches had to protect their jobs. And if you were the coach of a team that had lesser talent, you had to counteract it some way or other. So I think, by and large, we've gotten a wonderful balance with the rules ever since Brendan Shanahan uh, was, was the guy who took the lead of calling that conference in the darkest days of December um, in 2004 when everything was sitting out and he called representatives of all facets of the sport uh, with the permission of Gary Bettman to meet in Toronto and to spend a couple of days hammering out what he thought would and what that group agreed would be best for the sport. And uh, of all the proposals they came up with, only a couple of them were adopted either immediately or eventually. No touch icing and, and uh, shootouts and everything else all came about. And so the last 15 years have seen a glorious transformation of the game, I think. Uh, I, I am not one who really considers one era better than the other because the sport is magnificent anyway. But I do admire the guys who played in that earlier time, because with the talent and with the rules they operated in, 
they were magnificent performers, just like the guys are today. <laughs> and I guess the ultimate accomplishment in the sport is the Stanley Cup. And I can't think of any other other sport that has anything comparable to it. And you spend time in the book describing about that it's like they don't even care if they get paid. It's, it's something that just to have your name on that cup and to win that cup. I just And the way you brought the words out in terms of talking about what the players told you about winning the Stanley Cup. And sometimes they can't even describe it, the feeling themselves. And there have been times that I've been around it as a host in the earlier years, and it's sitting right next to you. And it is difficult to describe, and I'm hard-pressed to describe it even today. It is difficult to describe what that's like. It's a magnificent uh, trophy. The original bowl was first uh, minted in 1893. It's been long ago retired because it became so brittle. But there are two cups. One remains constantly at the Hall of Fame in Toronto, and the other is the one that has the various spelling mistakes in it and has X's through one of the names of someone who <laughs> was later learned to not belong on the cup, and so they X'd him out. It was one of the uh, relatives of the owner in Edmonton long ago. And so there are a lot of little flaws in it, and every so often they remove a ring for uh, from it because you can't put the, any more names on it, and so they have to... Uh, Gordy Howe's name and, and Maurice Rocket Richard's name is no longer on the Stanley Cup because those rings had to be moved, removed and others moved up to accommodate the, the great number of teams that are on it. There's a limit of 52 names and they're all etched on one letter at a time. It's just, it has magnificent history and they always shine it up and it looks so good when it is brought out and presented. Um, and one final question as we talked to Doc Emmerich, author of Off Mike, tremendous book. Mike buy it on Amazon, the bookstores, Barnes & Noble, all this. Are, it's, a, it's a great, great, great book. But you had a quote from Tyler Bozick, and he had a goal in front of 100,000 fans in Michigan Stadium for one of the winter classics. And he goes, the fans were great. They really seemed into it. Just And then you compared it to saying, but I've heard the same my, said quotes said by minor leaguers in front of like 100 fans or 500 fans. Yeah, it, uh, a hockey player is a hockey player, and, and there's almost a universal feeling. And, and uh, another, another analogy that I they used is that Connor McDavid's jersey is probably as laden with sweat as, as a guy that plays in the Federal Prospects Hockey League, which is the single-A level, uh, at the end of the night, because you still have to go 200 feet to play your position. Uh, hockey players are united that way. They have that uh, they have that feel about the sport, regardless of what their talent level might be. It's still a joy to play it. And I live near Port Huron, Michigan, and we have a franchise in the Federal Prospects League. If you have the NHL at the top and the next level, the American League and the next level, the ECHL and the next level, the Southern Pro League, then the Federal Prospects League would be not capital A, it's single, uh, it's lowercase a. But there's no less pride in playing at that level. When the puck is dropped, they're competing just as hard. And isn't it something? And I got hooked at a minor league game 60 years ago. And these are guys that compete. And somewhere in that arena is probably some kid nearsighted with his program there, keeping track of the goals and assists like I did that night, that's seeing his first game, too. And I think that was one thing I was always conscious of, that somewhere in the TV audience that night, 
chances are there was someone who'd never seen a hockey game before. So I wanted to make sure that I did my best for that person. Well, hopefully we're going to have fans back in the stand soon and other people can have memories like that. Doc, thanks so much for coming on Iron Sports. I really appreciate it. And this has been just so exciting to hear you talk. And, and when I'm listening to you, I'm like, I'm, I pretend I'm like watching a hockey game because you're describing <laughs> it in such detail. So thanks again for coming on the show. Oh, thank you so much, and I appreciate your mentioning the book. And 100% of anything that I get from Triumph Publishing goes to the hands-on care of animals. Uh, so if people get the book and they spend the money on the book and all of a sudden they put it down and say, gee, I don't like this, they should feel good about the fact that they spent the money and it's going to go to take care of creatures. No one's going to say so that. No one's going to say. No one's going to say that. But again, I know you love okay. do- I, you love dogs and horses, and it's yeah definitely for a great cause. So thanks again so much for coming on. I run sports. Thank you so much. Have a great holiday. Okay, Doc. Thank you so much, and uh, we'll catch up with you soon. Okay. So long.